This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to another episode of Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we look at something new in cinemas and we compare it to old films in the same genre or from the same filmmaker and and maybe uh, draw some comparisons and some contrasts and maybe introduce you to some films you've never heard of before. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer and critic. Uh, my blog is called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer for the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. And you can find me on Twitter at, at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Today we're talking about the master, Stanley Kubrick, who, uh, you know, is, is much beloved and, in fact, over the years, actually quite a lot maligned as well. <laughs> uh, and and in, in light of the recent uh, release of... of uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey in IMAX and 70mm, we'll uh, talk about that. And also a new documentary about his close cohort, Leon Vitale, called Filmworker. Well, we're 66 episodes into Lends Me Your Ears, and uh, I guess it's about time we tackled the uh, the grand enfant terrible of cinema, and... Uh, the favorite of film nerds worldwide, <laughs> that is Stanley Kubrick, uh, who is, uh, I, I, I've actually seen on like Facebook film groups, his discussion of his work banned because it incites such passions and, and, uh, and derision. And, um, you know, some people feel he's overrated. Some people he feel he's, uh, over discussed, you know, that there's another world, <laughs> there's more to film than, than the films of Stanley Kubrick and, and that he's actually, and it's like, put him on the back burner for a while, give it, but of course, uh, in, in, uh, the last year we've seen a, a new restoration and reissue of 2001, the space odyssey to mark the 50th anniversary of his 1968 masterwork and also a new documentary that, uh, is available from a number of different platforms at the moment. I got it off of, uh, iTunes. I think it may have had a brief week run here maybe at park lane or something but uh and you found it on video on demand and it's called film worker and it's about uh kubrick's close cohort leon vitale who's been with him uh since the mid 70s and of course continues to work uh in relation to his films and legacy uh in the years following his death so it uh it seems like a prime time to discuss uh uh certainly a favorite filmmaker of ours uh and uh, and one whose work uh consistently yields rewards no matter how many times you see the films. There's always something to get out of them um, and preferably seen on a big screen in a theater, in a darkened theater where you can just focus on the film and look at the, the set design and pay attention to the sound design and all those little details that Kubrick, more than any other filmmaker, is most famous for nitpicking and obsessing over and filming for days on end, just to get everything exactly the way he wanted it uh, in his movies. And uh, maybe perhaps at the detriment of other <laughs> aspects of his films. It's, it depends on who you talk to and uh, which films you're talking about. But uh, he was certainly probably the most obsessive filmmaker that we've seen uh, in, in the past century of, of films. And getting a chance to see these uh, works on the big screen, it, it's not always easy. Um, you know, certainly living in a town here in Halifax where there are no film projecting theaters uh, makes it difficult to have revivals. And and you kind of hope that, you know, in the age of digital cinema, that that uh, it will make it easier down the road to, to see proper 
high-def uh, digital masters of these films uh, get shipped out here for a, for a screening of some sort. And, uh, of course, recently we were lucky enough to get that, uh, that I guess it's a 4K, maybe even 8K, I don't know, ultra-high-res uh, resolution version of 2001 shown at the, uh, the IMAX cinema, which I guess no longer projects film. Um, IMAX film, but still has a pretty huge screen and, and digital projector to go with it. And uh, it was it was a real treat to see this on the big screen again. In fact, um, I have a long history with this film, going back to probably the 10th anniversary <laughs> reissue of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, it, Of course, um, you know, in the 70s, it was a little more common to see things get reissued because not everybody had uh, home video at that point. The 80s is really when being able to watch uh, the movie of your choice in the comfort of your own home really uh, became part of our lifestyles. And uh, in this case, uh, you know, like, for example, we used to get the Sound of Music at the Oxford for a week every Christmas. Uh, oh, and, yeah. You know, the, know that. The, so, the, yeah, and, and there was sort of regular, you know, they'd trundle out uh, Ben-Hur, Gone with the Wind for a limited run or something like that. And of course, Disney was probably most famous for bringing back its classic animated titles. Like every eight years or so, you'd, it's time to bring 101 Dalmatians back to the theater or Pinocchio or Fantasia. And, um, you know, which is why uh, as a kid, I was lucky enough to see all those major works on the big screen. But um, I uh, just happened, uh, we happened to be on a family vacation in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, which oddly enough is where they had the very first sort of public premiere screening of 2001 a space odyssey took place in washington um maybe because of the whole space connection and the, the, they just recently opened a new museum of space and aeronautics at the smithsonian and that kind of thing um uh this of course was 10 years after that fact and uh i was i was only about 12 or 13 years old so uh this is a film that does uh isn't necessarily one an easy one to read for an experienced film goer because so much of it is is vague and left open to interpretation uh, and yet uh, as someone who had uh, recently seen star wars uh you know this is a year after star wars came out or a, a year or two um i was really hungry for more of these kinds of outer space uh dramas and uh and i i got it right away i figured out that okay the monolith is uh, the alien means uh, each step in evolution is marked by the presence of this monolith that has been placed there by unseen aliens from beyond the infinite, and uh, and it, it clicked with me right away, and I've been a fan of that film ever since. And that might actually be my first Kubrick uh, viewing experience because, of course, uh, Clockwork Orange wasn't going to show up on TV anytime soon, and uh, I was never old enough to get into the theatrical screenings of The Shining or Full Metal Jacket for that matter. So. Um, you know, this would be my first uh, theatrical experience with a Kubrick film uh, and my last until Eyes Wide Shut came out. So uh, it, it was a pretty landmark event to be able to see it on a huge screen. I don't know if it was 70 millimeter or not or just uh, 35, but it, it was a profound experience at the time. And, uh, you know, thanks to my dad who loved science fiction, who took me to see it. Um, I don't know what he thought of the film. I think he preferred the book, to be quite honest. But uh, but the, the whole saga of this journey to Jupiter and, uh, you know, the start with the dawn of man and, and the use of the first weapon and uh, the insidious computer, Hal, who's been programmed very specifically in a way that uh, turns out to be harmful to humans, uh, even though I think I may have read iRobot at this time. <laughs> it was like it was breaking the law of robotics uh, by... by uh, taking out these those astronauts. So, well, wasn't that part of the problem of the, the glitch? <laughs> yes, his exactly. Programming is that he had two conflicting. Exactly. Uh, and when they tried to later explain in 2010, explain what had happened, what 
was wrong, why Hal had had a problem. It was some, it was a confliction, conflicting in his programming. Exactly. And then all of a sudden the humans were the virus. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. that were getting in the way of, of this end goal of getting to Jupiter and making contact with whatever was out there. Um, and uh, of course, the film widely open to interpretation. There's lots of uh, interesting nods to the past and to the future, of course, you know, trying to predict what, what it was going to be like. Uh, you know, 40 years down the road and, and, you know, seeing brand names that were no, no longer in existence by the time that uh, 2001 actually roll, rolled around and some that are. Uh, interesting that uh, IBM is uh, a brand name featured in the film. There's a couple of IBM monitors or systems in place uh, that you spot during the course of the film. And of course, as everyone who has paid any attention to this film knows, Hal is a um, simple uh, abstraction of IBM. It's one letter before the letters of IBM form the letters H-A-L, which may or may not have been intentional depending on who you talk to. Uh, Hard to imagine it wasn't. Yeah, it seems kind of, you know, it, it can't be that random. So Yeah, 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 it, uh, it's a, an incredible film. I can't remember when the first time I saw it, to be honest. I can remember a lot of other uh, Kubrick's films, my first screening, but that one just has always been there. Uh, and I, yeah, and I really, you know, I, 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 always been kind of in awe of it in the way that despite how old it is but I mean at every point I've seen it I've always been impressed by the how how immersive the special effects are and how uh, ambitious the storytelling is so and I've never yeah I, I, the the sort of like psychedelic maybe the psychedelic uh, 15 minutes in the in the conclusion might be the only part that still feels that really tips off that it's a it's a 60s it's made in the 60s where but i i do as i understand if i understand the history of the film correctly it was embraced by the counterculture to some degree and some of that stuff is right in tune with the way that people were thinking about um you know visuals audiovisual entertainment and audiovisual art uh at the time so any all i mean you know there's been so much said about this film that uh, I doubt that I could add much to that. But uh, I am disappointed and envious that my week, which was very busy, (laughs) was uh, did not allow for my going out to see this film in IMAX. Tell me, Stephen, about what uh, what you got out of it, seeing it in, in that format. Well, the, the nice thing about it was it was obviously a spotless presentation. You know, I, I, I've, I've seen it on film three times and by digital projection in a theater uh, fourth time after that at one of those flashback film festivals. But I did also see it in 35 millimeter at Wormwood's Dog and Monkey Cinema. And I think once at Park Lane, they had um, to mark one of their anniversaries uh, when it was still owned by famous players, they had a like, what film would you like to see on the big screen kind of thing? And it was kind of a write-in thing. People like, and so they, they tried to track down prints of as many of people's favorite films as they could find. Oddly enough, they could not get a print of The Shining. Apparently, The Shining ranked very highly on the films that people wanted to see. And uh, Warner Brothers in Canada, anyway, did not have a 35-millimeter print. Mm. Apparently, the one they had had been shown so many times, they just junked it, uh, which, was, which was rather unfortunate. And, um, but I think they did have a decent print of Clockwork Orange, which is, I think, what they showed in its state. Um, but... Um, you know, so I got to see it then because that was also a big write-in for it. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia was another one where the print was just all beat to hell. Um, but still, that was, my I think, my one and only time seeing Lawrence of Arabia on a big screen. Uh, and uh, so, you know, this was obviously not film. It's digital, so it's 
you know, lossless, I guess. Um, and sometimes I've had issues with watching some things on the big screen in IMAX where I start noticing pixels um, uh-huh. that um, some films, you know, they're, they're obviously blown up for that large screen format and that sometimes either the projection or the whatever digital copy they're using may not quite be up to snuff for it. And uh, I did not find that the case here. I thought it uh, it looked amazing. And, and the sound, it was played, as is usually the case in that particular cinema, um, it was played quite loud. Yes, yes, <laughs> Which, uh, sure. You know, and, and, you know, from this new uh, digitally remastered soundtrack. So there are key moments in the film. Obviously, you know, musical uh, moments that everybody knows. Also, Sprax Zarathustra, you know, which, you know, was famously adopted by Elvis <laughs> for his opening, for his uh, coming onto stage music and all that kind of thing. I mean, we all sounded very impressive. But that moments like, um, you know, when they, they discover or they, they visit the monolith that's uh, been discovered on the moon and it lets out the signal mm-hmm. um, that extends to Jupiter, uh, that was. That was almost punishingly loud, but of course, everybody in the movie is holding their head, their helmets. Right, sure. Of course, they can't do anything because you know their head is in a helmet. Um, and the, the Georgie uh, Ligeti. Uh, yeah, those are really unnerving. The Ligeti, you know, the you know, those, just <laughs> yeah. those those weird atonal voices mm-hmm. all shrieking at once. Uh, you know, that was very effective, and uh, you know, and then of course there are just those moments where you're. It's just the sound of Dave Bowman in his helmet breathing hard. You know, while he's uh, disconnecting Hal, I mean, it, it it was all very effective and and uh, and looked fantastic. I, I you know, and, and it's worth noting that there are two versions of it out there. There, there's this new digital remastered version, but there's also a, a 70 millimeter film print that's making the rounds. Obviously, we don't have the wherewithal to sh- sh- see one of those here in Halifax. Uh, I think the, the last 70 millimeter setup was scrapped after. Uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, I think might've been the last title shown in that format in Halifax, uh, in its initial release. Um, you know, but, but, and people have seen it in, in Chicago. In fact, the theater in Chicago, the music box actually either purchased or got a hold of their own copy of the print. They have their own 70 millimeter, 70 millimeter print, which they don't own, but they keep with their, some of the other prints that they have. And, I guess it still technically belongs to Warner Brothers, but you know they can screen it whenever they want, I suppose. Or, or, or Warner Brothers, if they need to loan it out somewhere, they have access to it as well. So it's a lot was made of it, par- partially because it was the whole thing was overseen by Christopher Nolan, a film director who has um, an avowed uh, disciple of Kubrick's, and uh, you know, and a huge fan of that film in particular. Uh, you know, and certainly it was an influence on Interstellar. Is yeah, probably the most obvious that. influence, yeah. uh, and uh, but some people have seen that print and feel that also the color scheme is vastly different to what they remember seeing either on on Blu-ray or in past theatrical presentations. That Nolan has kind of imposed his will on it somewhat and and given it a more bluish teal kind of color temperature. And mm. I, I honestly I, I can't say for myself. There is a video. There is a video online that compares the trailer for that particular release with um, uh, either a previous trailer or scenes from a, a Blu-ray or something like that. But then again, you know, you're looking at it on a computer monitor, so that's not necessarily the most um, accurate way to, to look at yeah. these uh, these images. And, uh, you know, unless it's like, 
harsh light through a film strip. Uh, that's the only way you can really say. But but some who have seen it have said that you know either the, either the prints are imperfect because the, you know they get scratched after one screening in some cases, um, or that they don't just don't have the quite quite right color temperature. But I I didn't really find that with the version that I saw here in Halifax. And I think the, the digital version, the, I think that there's probably a reward to seeing it in 70 millimeter, but it'll be an entirely different one. Well, we need, uh, uh, you know, we'll, we'll need a 70 millimeter projector here in town, yes. clearly, uh, to do this kind of thing. It'd but, be you nice. Know, yeah, I'd like was, to see uh, Hateful Eight in 70 millimeter. I actually saw it that oh, you did? In, in Toronto. Yeah, because oh, nice. the, the, the varsity cinemas have a 70 millimeter uh, room. And uh, yeah, it was, it was terrific. It, I think it really upped my appreciation of that film. Um, but when you talk about different versions of of Kubrick films and certainly uh you know this is a conversation that comes up with him particularly it's the most film nerdy conversation i think oh yeah um but it, this is the, this is when we can recommend film worker to people if people do have an interest in this cuz film worker is a documentary i actually it is available on VOD and iTunes but i actually saw it when i was in london uh at the BFI uh in may and it's about leon vitali who started as an actor and was prominent in Kubrick's 1975 film, uh, Barry Lyndon. And then they started a relationship, a friendship, where uh, Vitaly became his assistant in the years, subsequent years, and has become kind of the, the last word in terms of maintaining the standard that Kubrick expected with the screening of his films. And Vitaly checks all the prints, and he, he, was, he was the, he was, you know, he was there answering the phones and, and helping organize, doing all the admin, and the film really goes into the kind of contribution that Vitaly made to Kubrick's legacy, to his reputation by virtue of of being as stringent and as uh um you know as as fussy <laughs> as Kubrick could be <laughs> yes. um but it but then the the film asks to what cost not only to his own family and his own mental health and his own uh potential as an actor you know and and, and it's an interesting question uh i think vitali says very often in the film that he wanted to do this and he felt that this is something he he felt that he wanted to devote his life to because he really believed in what kubrick was doing as an artist and so there really isn't any question if vitali is happy doing what he's doing and he continues to do then that's then that's great, but it's it is a it's a it's a really interesting portrait. I think if if you have an interest in this kind of this kind of nerdery when it comes to Kubrick's work, this is essential. This documentary to see, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's really thoughtful. I thought, yeah, it, it's a fascinating portrait because his is a name that I've heard uh, in connection with the filmmaker over and over for years. Basically, there were there were the two guys kind of responsible for Kubrick's legacy. One is uh, Jan Harlan who handles a lot of the business aspects of the Kubrick estate and, uh, and, and Vitaly, who's kind of more into the technical side of the, the releases and the restorations and that kind of thing. And, uh, and I sort of heard these names over and over. Interestingly enough, uh, Har- neither Harlan nor anybody else connected with the actual estate um, appears in the film, which may be kind of telling that there might be a bit of a, a rift there. Um, you know, there's one moment in the film where he, he decides that he'd, he he doesn't want to talk about certain aspects of uh, the toll that uh, maintaining some of these prints or looking after the release of um, Eyes Wide Shut. I think he 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 went without sleep or food for like thirty six hours and nearly collapsed at the end of it. And and I, I think it sound from the sounds of it, it looks like he had some sort of mental breakdown. But they he kind of backs off from talking about it. 
Um, you know, because it was obviously in the wake of Kubrick's death and he was, you know, very, you know, totally grease stricken, but dedicated to getting this film out in exactly the way that it was supposed to be, uh, seen, which of course became a challenge because they had to censor it visually right, <laughs> and yeah. had to come up with a way that they could release it and still, uh, you know, meet the production code, um, or the, the MPAA rating or whatever. And, and, you know, that was a headache cause he wasn't, a, you know, Kubrick wasn't around to oversee it. And uh, there was a bit of a battle there. So that isn't really discussed in the documentary either. That would be interesting to, to know more about that uh, whole schlamozel. But, but um, yeah, his kind of uh, sacrifice of everything to, to help uh, this man uh, achieve his vision is, is, is astonishing. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, he talks about, like, he'd been acting. He gets onto the set of Barry Lyndon, you know, this big, you know, career making role and uh but he just becomes obsessed with the meat and potatoes of behind the scenes of, of what happens you know being in the camera is one thing but the actors are just in their own little corner but he wanted it all he wanted to be but you know obviously was not a director um so he sort of went for the next best thing and being kind of the second in command as it were and uh and it's it's interesting that, that uh, there's a moment in the film where uh kubrick had to lay down the law somewhere and didn't want to be seen as the bad guy. So he sent a letter out, but signed it as Leon. So he actually kind of impersonated his second in command so that Leon could take the heat for whatever decision he had to make. And, yeah. and, uh, I, I get the feeling that the, that was often his role was to, as the deflector shield, <laughs> you know, when, when, uh, when Kubrick had to lash out at somebody for something or other, um, he had to kind of take the brunt of that, uh, when it came back in his direction. <laughs> So Stanley Kubrick uh, started as a photographer, you know, born and bred in New York City. Uh, later in his life, he moved to the UK where he was making films and he found himself a home there, um, married and started a family there and, and, uh, and, and preferred to make films there. But early in his career, he uh, really fought for – his story is one of, of control and fighting for artistic control and authorship in films. Uh, now, his his earliest films uh, from the 1950s, I'm a big fan of Paths of Glory. We'll get there. Uh, that's probably, I don't know if it's my favorite film of his, but it's one that I've revisited often. And people often talk about how Kubrick, his work can be confounding the first time you see it, but then the second or third time, any one of his films, they grow on you. And I thir- certainly have seen the reputation of his films grow Uh Eyes Wide Shut was very controversial when it first came out. A lot of people didn't like it, but you know, 20 years later, almost 20 years later, I think it's it's very much considered amongst you know as easily as good as as his other films. Um, his early work, Fear and Desire, was his first film. It's described as a, a first feature film, I should say. He made some short documentary shorts, uh, and I haven't seen it. I gather it's it feels like a student film, like he's really trying out the form. <laughs> it uh, it does, but it it you know his visual eye is really, uh, really present. Like mm-hmm. it, it's it's for what it is. It's and what he was working with in terms of budget and crew and equipment and all that stuff. It looks great, um, but it does suffer from a very clunky scenario and some some really not great. Um, dubbing of, right. the, of the soundtrack so it, it that gives it this kind of yeah almost an you know, amateurish sheen but uh if you can kind of turn off the clunkiness 
of the the dialogue and so on. There's there's some pretty great stuff happening in it, and uh, you almost wish maybe he, take, he could have taken another pass at it. But uh, but it's it's definitely worth seeing, and now it's widely available. It used to be you could used to be completely locked away. He didn't want anyone to see it, and then bootleg started circulating. And at some point, I think the estate realized that it was probably better that there be a good version of it out there. Right. Um, the Library of Congress had a like a you know a good print of it, and uh, that's what's available now. So. Yeah, so there's that one. And then there's the one I was previously aware of, The Killer, which is his third film from 1956. And I was actually thinking to myself, you know, in between there's The Killer's Kiss, confusingly, uh, from 55 that I hadn't seen. And I opened up my Criterion uh, edition of The Killer, and there's The Killing. The the Killing, yes, I apologize, (laughs) The Killing. Uh, And then uh, within that is uh, a disc of The Killer's Kiss. I I had not remembered. So I'm like, oh, well, this is perfect. So I get to watch them both. Uh, And in fact, The Killing was great to see it again. It's a very well-made heist movie with a lot of hard-boiled characters. It very much feels in that noirish tradition. Uh, and it's really, really fun. Uh, I was really charmed and by the um, uh, scene. There's a few scenes between Marie Windsor and Elijah Cook Jr., where she's the femme fatale, and she and she's married to him, and she hates him, and she berates and belittles him, and he wants to impress her, and he admits to this plan to rob the racetrack, and oh, it's all these like you know morally compromised characters as you find in, but it's it's actually very funny, and then uh, watching the killer's kiss, which he, he clearly did on a shoestring, like it has all the elements of of a very low budget film, but it's got that same gritty crime drama element to it. And a terrific sense of place, shooting, you know, collections of images. He he went to Times Square and he just shot a bunch of storefronts and all sorts of imagery to give elicit a sense of place. And then you know, scenes in in the alleys of rundown parts of New York City's in, in the 1950s. Uh, uh, you know, it's almost like that's the real story there. The the plot, which is about a washed up boxer who falls in love with a taxi dancer who's a neighbor of his and uh, tries to help her, even though she's got a very violent boss. It's it's you know it's pretty boilerplate, but the the clearly Kubrick's mastery of of image making and the lighting uh, has already fully formed in this film, and that's the part that's the thing that really jumped out at me. Yeah, it's got its roots in it. He did three short films at the start of his career. Um, one was called The Flying Padre, about a um, a priest who flies around remote parts of uh, the American Southwest to various congregations. Uh, then he did Day of the Fight, which uh, chronicled. Um, you know, a boxing match, and he focuses on one boxer in particular, which, of course, informs uh, what we find in Killer's Kiss. Um, but this is all ground that he trod as a photographer for news magazines. I mean, that's where he got his start, Look Magazine in particular, I think, and another another um, other one. So so Killer's Kiss, he's kind of back in New York. He's treading ground that he knows really well from from his photographer beat. Um, and so that's that's what informs that movie. And uh, they, he and his production partner sold that to United Artists. I think they said, "Oh, this is pretty good. We'll we'll release this." Because um, Fear and Desire was shown in some theaters, but certainly not on a wide release level. But Killer's Kiss, uh, you know, got him in, his foot in the door with a studio, uh, which uh, enabled him to make the Killers, which is uh, sees him collaborating with Jim Thompson, the writer. Ah, the Har- Killing. The, the Killing. <laughs> See, now I've done it. And I've done it. <laughs> I've been doing this my whole life between those two films. Um, <laughs> See, it is confusing because their yeah. titles are very similar. Uh, the Killing, uh, with with working with Jim Thompson from a novel that Thompson didn't write, but Thompson, of course, r- wrote these amazing hard-boiled uh, crime novels, usually uh, 
where the protagonist is actually the bad guy <laughs> right, <laughs> quite sure. often in things like the killer inside me and, and so on. Um, and, and, you know, so he brings that kind of gritty realism and, and, and proper, you know, feel for dialogue and everything, something that, that maybe doesn't, uh, exist so much in uh, killer's kiss and fear and desire. But, um, you know, so those, so those first two films, he, you know, he went with low, hard boiled, low budget crime drama. Cause it was an easy sell and one that he knew would, uh, you know, take him to the next level, which of course would be, um, uh, paths of glory, uh, which is where we really see his, uh, style. And, and, you know, m- you know, maybe it's truly the first sort of truly Kubrickian film. Um, Jim Thompson worked on the screenplay for that as well, but apparently not many of his contributions made it to the screen. Uh, you know, it seems like, uh, like it's the most percentage of Kubrick that we've seen in a movie to this point. And, uh, between the theme thematic, uh, nature of the, you know, the stress of men, under um under battle or you know under some great stress which uh, is something that keeps recurring throughout uh, throughout its films you know it's it's got so it's got the theme that would recur in, in later films you know it's got the moving camera that 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 uh great sun-baked look of his early black and white photography and and uh you know and a an obsessive character at the core in this case uh <laughs> colonel dax played by um uh, Kirk Douglas. So, uh, everything's kind of falling into place with that in a film where everything feels, you know, like it's just, it's very exacting and, and has that, uh, detailed, uh, approach that would become his trademark. For sure. I really love Paz Glory and I go back to it a lot. Uh, it's, it's one of his shortest features, uh, 88 minutes and a very taut screenplay, uh, and it's his first of a trilogy of war movies. This one, uh, and then Doctor Strange Lover, How I Stopped Worrying and Learned to Love the Bomb, and then Full Metal Jacket. Uh, Paths of Glory, I think, for a casual Kubrick interest, would be a great place to start. Um, it does show his style and themes that he would use throughout his career, that wide-angle tracking shots, those long takes, uh, a stark sense of realism, and, and a fascination with irrationality of authority, the absurdity of people in power, um, you know, watch, watching the film, seeing how the camera prowls around, following the actors and circling them and abrupt cuts. Uh, we know now that Kubrick loved dozens of takes, which I think manifests in making for scenes that feel a little bit like the actors are choreographed. Uh, and I, I, I watching, watching Eyes Wide Shut, uh, which is still probably my favorite Nicole Kidman role, she just seems like she's almost a dancer. Like, I feel like every move she makes is completely choreographed, but in a way that she does it so... <laughs> it's hard to believe, but it's kind of a natural way of being choreographed, if that makes any sense. Uh, and it's amazing. You can't help but watch her when she's on screen in that film. And I feel like a lot of his actors, just from doing the the takes over and over and over again, get that kind of, like, ease. Like, almost like their bodies just know exactly what to do next. And it becomes, it gives his films a certain kind of hypno- hypnotic quality that, that a lot of uh, filmmakers don't have. Um, uh, when you watch Paths of Glory, watch for the famous tracking shot as the French soldiers charge from the right to left into German guns. Uh, really groundbreaking sequences. Uh, and, and then, you know, it's... Uh, Kirk Douglas is uh, is very good in the film. He and, uh, uh, of course, they would work again in Spartacus, where uh, Kubrick was brought in late. Uh, Spartacus feels like the one film outside the usual Kubrick 
um, body of work because it's kind of he's kind of work for hire. He did his best to try to make it his own, but really I think he he balked at all the studio interference on that film, and certainly Douglas's interference too because he was also producer as well as star. Um, but in this film, it feels like Douglas is just doing his, a great role as the, as the actor, um, and. Uh, yeah, um, I would also say that uh, I want to say about this film, it, it was banned in years, uh, in, for years in France because the government felt it was too critical of the French military. Um, and it has a lot of, uh, of great performances. I really love seeing Joe Turkle. And a, a supporting <laughs> yes. actor showing up in a bunch of Kubrick's work. Um, he also was the bartender in The Shining, and uh, and in my mind, he'll also always be Dr. Terrell, the creator of Replicants in Blade Runner. Um, yeah, and uh, Ralph Meeker, who uh, was Mike Hammer in, in Kiss Me Deadly, and I really like George McCready, who plays General Paul Moreau. Um, and he, he's, I always thought that he was made up, with the scar on his but cheek. His actual scar, yeah. is an actual ca- scar from a car accident, which, of course, meant he played a lot of villains in his career, including in Gil- Gilda. Gilda's his most famous. And uh, yeah. comedian um, uh, Greg Proops is really fond, does a really great George McCready impression. Wow. And is really that's pretty fun. niche. Yeah, that's pretty niche. <laughs> and actually, Lenny, Lenny Bruce, uh, in one bit, did a George McCready impression, too. So uh, <laughs> certainly a, 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 just such a unique voice that I can see... You know, certain film-loving uh, comedians want, want to revert to that that just that that silky menace that that he had that was kind of his uh, stock and trade. Yeah. Um, one other thing I want to say about that I really love about Paths of Glory is that none of the English-speaking actors put on French accents. Uh, this was a conscious stylistic choice, and it was criticized by some at the time. But it's one I always point to when I when I get annoyed that with uh, with English films that are shot with English-speaking actors putting on accents because they're pretending to play... They're playing characters in other cultures. Um, I just feel like that's that that like that's a Hollywood trope that's really distracting, and, and I just think that this is the way it needs to be done. You just, you just settle on sort of a mid-Atlantic kind of English-spoken and don't, ha- don't make the actors try to put on some kind of accent that doesn't suit them or often just sounds conflicting because you get actors speaking English from those cultures who are cast in the film, and then then they all sound weird when they're speaking to each other. It's anyway. I, I this is it's a small thing, but it's something that always kind of bugs me, and I really like what Kubrick does here with that. Yeah, I would want to see Ralph Meeker trying a French accent; it just wouldn't work, or uh, 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 or Timothy Carey for that matter, who's the third of the soldiers who's picked completely at random or supposedly at random uh, for this firing squad because of the cowardice of one company in one key battle, um, which is the crux of the film. Uh, and of course, uh, T- Carrie is one of the craziest uh, s- sort of character actors of his day. I gather he was fired from this by the <laughs> towards was. the end of the film because he kept wanting to, you know, steal the scenes. Well, there, he kept, he was, he made a new, I mean, he, he'd been in The Killing. He's very memorable in The Killing as this guy, this sort of marksman who takes out a horse in The Killing. Um, but, uh, you know, he kind of overstepped his bounds. He figured, uh, he, he, I guess he worked with Kubrick on one, one film, so he kind of overstepped his bounds uh, on uh, Paths of Glory and just tried his patience once too often by faking a kidnapping, apparently. Okay. <laughs> and uh, he felt he wasn't getting enough attention, apparently, on the set or from press or whatever, so he staged his own kidnapping, and they just said, that's it. You know, and they used a double for one scene and then, then left him out of the final battle scene because they just 
didn't want him around anymore. So just, and, you know, and then he goes on to other memorable roles. I, I, I first saw him in the movie Head, the monkey's um, oh, movie. Oh, yeah. Where sure. he, he plays kind of a, a strange villain. And he's a bunch of, he's in a bunch of those beach movies with okay. uh, Frankie and Annette. Just a weird career and a very strange man, but <laughs> but, but once you learn about him, he's very he's, he's completely fascinating. But um, but and certainly memorable in Paths of Glory. You know, you just can't uh, take your eyes off the guy. Now you also watched Lolita. Yes, uh, I don't know if you want to say a few things about that. I figure Spartacus. You know, as I mentioned, it's it's a, the outlier in in Kubrick's work. Uh, clearly, there are some visual aspects that feel very true to Kubrick, but but I don't really feel like that's not one I ever particularly feel like revisiting when I feel like watching a Kubrick film. Uh, whereas Lolita, it's like you know very you know he's got the sort of uh, literary source, which he very much you know went to literary sources to adapt to his films. He's got utter control, and it's a super controversial. A book, oh, yeah. which made for a super controversial film, but it earned a lot of money because people were very curious to see it. Um, but yeah, what did you make of it? I I have a mixed feelings about it, but uh, it's great seeing uh, it's the Peter Sellers is just you know is so sort of infuriating and great in the movie. Um, and then and then you know Mason, uh, it's it's something. It's it's a fascinating movie, uh, and maybe more that it, the, just the simple fact that it did get made at the time that it got made. Uh, you know, it, it's, I mean, let's face it. It's a comedy about a pedophile. Um, uh, you know, James Mason just becomes obsessed with this, this young girl and, uh, and just takes it to the, the obsession with her just takes him over the edge. And it's, you know, it's there, there's a, there's a level of perversion in this film that had not been seen in a major studio film up to this point, I don't think. Um, and, and yet, you know, they have to, you know, Kubrick has to work within the realm of taste, uh, that um, existed at the time. So uh, much of what's in the book couldn't be in the film. And in fact, the, if you watch the trailer uh, for the movie, the whole trailer for the film is based around the fact is how did they make a film out of Lolita? Right. You know, because the book itself was controversial enough. And obviously they, they fudged it a bit by making her a bit older in the movie and hiring a, an older looking actress, even though she clearly looks like a teenager. Um, and by heightening the comedy, maybe more so than it would have been in the book, especially by including Peter Sellers as uh, Claire Quilty, who's, um, you know, maybe even more demented than James Mason's character. But of course, he's he's kind of. It's interesting that uh, you know Sellers has kind of a controlled dementia, whereas. Uh, uh, Mason is more manic as he just sort yeah. of loses control over his own, over his uh, senses and sensibility, as I, it were. I love that uh, there's a scene early on where uh, Humbert Humbert has just tracked down Quilty, who he feels he feels de- deeply wronged by, yes. and uh, he finds him in this like this mansion, like where there's clearly been parties going on for days. Is all the detritus of the of the party, and Quilty is there, still drunk. And the first thing he says, he's basically wearing like most of a, a sheet, which like which he fashions in a toga. And he says, who do you think I am? Spartacus? Uh, free the slaves? You know, and I'm like, oh, there's a little dig to uh, a little reference to his last film. Yeah, it's a, a nice little bit of continuity there. Yeah. Uh, and possibly improvised. Uh, I guess they they let sellers kind of roll with certain things, you know, which, which is hard to imagine him letting somebody sort of improvise. Uh, but with sellers, obviously he knew that he had something, uh, 
lightning in a bottle with him at the height of his powers before his, his own neuroses kind of got the better of him in the late sixties and into the seventies. Uh, it's, and, and, and Mason is superb. I mean, you don't, you obviously don't sympathize with this guy one bit, which is maybe spending so much time with somebody who's so unsympathetic is probably one of the knocks against the film. But again, that's, that's a trait <laughs> that we'll see throughout further, uh, further Kubrick films. He wasn't interested in sympathetic characters. He was interested in the flawed and, um, you know the, the the kind of undesirables were were kind of what uh, what he was interested in, and that's clearly why he uh, he got this property and decided that he was going to be the guy to bring a an, what supposedly was an unfilmable book uh, bring it to the screen. Um, it's 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 also fun to watch and try and spot like you know it was filmed in England with uh, obviously they got some second unit stuff from the from the U.S. but but it's uh, it's interesting when they try to pass off. Uh, a UK location of someplace in New England or, or what have you. So that it's got that weird uh, extra layer to it as well. But uh, again, his, his control over the production is, is, uh, is pretty, pretty well in hand. And that's what we would continue to see through the next few films. We're rapidly approaching the end of the show and and we're only into the early sixties and we've still got several uh, films to go, but these, these are films that have been widely talked about and discussed ad infinitum uh, uh, on podcasts and elsewhere. And, and so Dr. Strangelove is a film that uh, is, is in my mind, a perfect comedy uh, that it, um, I don't, I don't know what more we can add to that particular film. It's one uh, that still, it still seems uh, so potent today because leader, the leadership and some of the, idiocies of, of politics in some ways it seems more true now <laughs> given yeah. uh, our current climate than maybe it did uh you know 55 years ago a frightening truth there but you know it, it is possibly the preeminent uh cinema satire and, and it's definitely a must-see um not just because it's a kubrick film but just for you know it's it's look at uh, the uh the complete insanity of nuclear proliferation and and uh, what it could potentially lead to uh, you know it's both ahead of its time and of its time at the same time. And, uh, you know, that's why it still stands out as a remarkable film today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, and, and again, Peter Sellers in a triple role is, uh, remarkable in that film. Uh, yeah. And then he went on to make 2001, which is just still his masterwork. We've spoken a little bit about that. Uh, and after that was a clockwork orange, which is a film that still, I think has a lot of fans. Uh, it, it's one of those sort of like cult movies in a way that maybe the rest of his body of work, you can't really call it a cult movie in the same way as you can A Clockwork Orange, but A Clockwork Orange also has a production design uh, which feels very dated in a way that's that's 2001 doesn't. And I'm not sure. I think maybe it's because it's the future is seen from the early 70s and there is a, a lot of style and fashion in there that just feels a, feels a little more self-conscious now than ever. Maybe it's because Malcolm McDowell was such an icon of the 60s in some ways. And, and even though he's still working and very vibrant and capable actor now, he that role was so defining of him. I, think, I don't think he could escape that part. For, I mean, he went on to do things like Caligula, which is just more of the same, really, for a long time uh, before he kind of, he, you know, he found a, a place for himself in Hollywood. Um, you know, and the Anthony Burgess book is, is controversial. It's all, you know, it's like Kubrick is drawn to controversy. Uh, but 
then he took another left turn after that to make Barry Lyndon, which I know you and I, Stephen, do not agree about. It's a film that whenever I try and go back to be like, okay, I'm going to have a have a Kubrick night. I'm going to watch Barry Lyndon. I'm going to, you know, get this film finally. And I'll sit there and about 20 minutes in, I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> like, I get that it is famed for the fact that he he took a lens that was, you know, designed by NASA to to use in satellites and he attached it to a film camera so that he could he could film using the natural light from candles and shoot it at night and I get that that's a big deal and I appreciate that the visuals are fascinating when you know that but the the depth of field is so shallow that everything looks very flat and <laughs> and I find myself just looking at the art direction going oh yeah this is pretty impressive Okay, and then not caring. And I think that partly could be because... I think people are better off not knowing that. Because <laughs> then you kind of you start to, to, to obsess about uh, it. Sorry, spoilers, folks. <laughs> well, it's the but, first time that what type of lens was used as a spoiler for a movie. I yeah. think. But, but, I mean, it, it, it's, an, it's fascinating. The technical aspects of the film are pretty fascinating. They but. are. They are, but I think they're more fascinating than the film itself. And Ryan O'Neill's not very interesting. I like Marissa Berenson a lot, but uh, I just felt like it just meandered in a way that never engaged. And then I started to wonder, halfway through the, when I watched the film, I start to wonder whether Kubrick meant to challenge us with all this ornate stuff and try and put the least involving lead character and, and the least dramatic story he could so that, that it all be, becomes like a moving painting. Uh, and I don't know if that's, that's what he intended or not, but I can just say that I, I didn't feel emotionally engaged by the film like I, I am by his other films. Yeah, well, one of the things about Kubrick was that he was obsessed by the Napoleonic era. Um, right, he wanted to make a film He actually Napoleon. wanted to make a Napoleon. That was his great unrealized project, and um, which would have been such a great undertaking that picking a, a novel that kind of encompasses that kind of atmosphere... You know, and maybe maybe Barry Lyndon was a test run for a film that never got made in the end. But uh, I, I find it fascinating. I I, I find it um, I find it is flawed, but those flaws kind of make it more interesting to me. Like Ryan O'Neill is clearly miscast, <laughs> right? I mean, we, we we talked about like you know having actors like uh, Meeker and and uh, Joe Turkle, Joe Turkle in in Paths of Glory, but but here you know most of the cast is more accurately picked to uh to represent their characters in terms of at least uh nationality or what have you uh and then you've got this kind of blonde american collegiate dude playing this kind of irish uh ne'er-do-well from the from the 1600s so uh it is it is an odd um an odd choice for a lead man i i don't know if he picked him for the same reason he picked tom cruise for eyes wide shut that just it was he wanted a, a, maybe an attractive and popular male lead to sell folks on this story. But, but I, you know, I, I fall into this movie in terms of how it portrays life at that time. And, it, 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 you know, in terms, of, uh, in terms of warfare, in terms of social um, uh, mores and, and, that, and that kind of thing. And, and I, I just, I, it, if it's a moving painting, I find it a fascinating one. Just okay. For, for giving us a look at, at that life and that, the, the painstaking degree to which they went to portray that uh, that life in that period uh, on the screen in terms of just finding those locations and and uh, and its use of music and and everything but yeah it's more of a Sunday afternoon film than a right <laughs> than a you know 
after eight o'clock at night kind of film. Yeah. <laughs> and I was also fortunate. The first time I saw it was in a theater. I, I held off. I didn't want to watch it on home video. Uh, and then I just happened to luck upon a theatrical screening in Toronto in 35 mil on one of those blue street cinemas. And so I think that helps me with that film as well. I have this fond memory of seeing it for the first time in a theater and just being focused on the movie and kind of wrapped up in the atmosphere of it. It, it is not a film that plays well on home video. And it, to some degree, neither is 2001, but it, because it has those modern trappings, there's a lot to be fascinated by. But, um, yeah, Barry Lyndon just looks like an above-average PBS uh, kind of historical uh, series, if, uh, if if not viewed in the right frame of mind. Yeah, well, it's uh, that's sort of how I felt. Maybe my frame of mind has never <laughs> been right, uh, but uh, I have not gone back to it often. Uh, I have gone back to The Shining, his film, uh, Kubrick's film from 1980, quite a lot, but we talked about that in our scary supernatural thriller, the super horror movie uh a podcast when we were looking at hereditary uh yeah it, it it stands up to frequent rewatching, and of course has its own cult around it in a way um if you've seen the documentary room 237 uh full metal jacket i did see in the cinema i remember specifically in high school i was in the uk i was in london and um i was taking a film appreciation course as one could do in senior year mm-hmm. um and uh, was a senior or junior year anyway i was i was really loving that and the guy who taught the course was a film critic in town and uh could get passes to see preview screenings like the the film critics uh screenings of films so he took us down to um the uh, Odeon Leicester Square where we saw full metal jacket at the first screening uh, for press. Uh, and it was, I mean, you know, that was a thrill. And I can tell you, I was so excited to see it. And I remember really loving the sort of diptych aspect of Full Metal Jacket, how the first half is the boot camp um, with Private Pile, Vincent D'Onofrio in like explosive form. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, and then uh, and then the second half was the war movie and, it, and it, how chilly it all was and how how, you know, there's that certain distance between the camera and what's going on with a lot of Kubrick's films. But I felt in no more than than in this film. I, I really was the sort of voyeuristic quality in his movies that that really, really came together in this film. And then I remember it opening, and uh, that was the year of Platoon and Hamburger Hill, and all of a sudden Vietnam movies were all the thing, and in, in a certain, and, and Platoon won Oscars, uh, and Full Metal Jacket was kind of weirdly overshadowed by that film. Uh, and Platoon was so much more emotional and cathartic and uh, Oliver Stone-esque in the way that Oliver Stone is who he is, that uh, it's a strange thing that Full Metal Jacket I, maybe has never quite gotten its due as a result of the bad timing of the, of its release. But uh, it is, yeah, it's, um, I, I think in terms of style, it somehow, it, it encapsulates, it's like Kubrick got to that point in his career where he just was like, it, this is so Kubrickian to see this movie. It has so many of those aspects of his of his interest that uh, that I mean, and also the strange perversity of it all being shot in London, even the, <laughs> even Vietnam, the Vietnam stuff, stuff uh, makes it all seem so peculiar, even more so. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm rambling, but uh, but yeah, I I have I have I have strong feelings actually about this this one. Well, I guess because it, the second half can't help but feel like a step down from that amazing boot camp uh, 
sequence in the first half. Um, and the fact that you, you know, you kind of know it was filmed in a redressed ironworks or whatever it was, some, you know, an old oil refinery or some industrial wasteland in, in England was redressed with palm trees to look like Vietnam. Uh, it's hard to get your mind off of that. Um, uh, the, the second half is still pretty great, but it, it, it does feel like a bit of a distraction. I don't, I don't, I don't get fully sucked into it the way I would with something like platoon or apocalypse now or what okay. have you. Like, I, um, I'm also not a big Matthew Modine fan, so I don't, I don't, I mean, he's good here, maybe as good as he's been in anything, but I'm, I'm still never that much on board with his portrayal. So I, I don't know if that's a, a problem for other people that, that watch the film, but it's, it definitely feels like a kind of a bit of a step down. Um, having said that, you know, I do enjoy it when I watch it uh-huh. um, and probably enjoy it more on repeated viewings once I've kind of gotten those prejudices kind of out of the way or I can push them to the back of my mind. But, um, you know, they, they were a problem for me initially and probably put it on a lower tier than some of the other films that I like more. Yeah, well, that's fair. Uh, I uh, I think it's that, again, it's that personal connection of having seen it at that time in my yeah. life and uh, and having felt and felt very special uh, that still holds up for me. Um, and then he took a, another long break as he tried to get other projects off the ground, including AI, artificial intelligence, which Steven Spielberg eventually wound up making. Um, and then uh, he made Eyes Wide Shut, another film that came out that to large, you know, uh, criticism and uh, that I think has has done much better. We spoke about it a little bit when we talked uh, the last time we got together to talk about uh, movies that on Lens Me Your Ears when we uh, and we mentioned uh, we were looking at Tom Cruise's career. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I uh, George Leggetti again is used in the music here and and. Kubrick, I mean, we could have a whole show just about how Kubrick uses music in his films. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's astonishing and amazing. Uh, and I think the music brings so much to this film. Uh, yeah, and, and this is one I enjoy going back to as well, because it really is a comedy in in a way uh, that uh, that I don't think people got the first time no. out. No, I think they went in expecting this grand statement and not, not expecting this kind of look into just human perversity. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and, it, and a dreams, dreamscape, like a total yeah, dreamscape. Yeah, it's it, exactly. Well, it's a, the, the based on a novel. German it was a German novel that actually is the. What's I can't remember the name of the German source material, but something it was, about Vienna. Vienna. Yeah, but yeah. it had the mm. dream novel or something like that. Mm. Okay, well. yeah, right. Um, and so it was a, a strange, archaic source material that he updated to current day. Uh, you know, and much there was a lot in the press about how long it was taking to to produce. Then, of course, he died just before it came out. So the, the film was kind of marred by its own sort of advanced publicity and controversy, and, and it was hard to look at it um, just as, you know, take it at face value when it came out. So it is, it is a film that does improve with uh, repeat viewings, for sure. And, uh, and it's interesting, if you watch it, there are like little nods to past uh, films, like, like obvious ones, like a, there's an obvious Lolita nod. Right. Uh, with, I think, is it Lily Sobieski, I think? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, yeah. And, and so on, so... It's there's there's uh, there's a lot going on in this film that probably wasn't appreciated the first time around. But like like all of his other films, you kind of have to watch it more than once to to pick up all the cues. Yeah. And there is a playfulness there that I think he wasn't credited enough with. You know, he I think for him, I imagine that the the his weight of his reputation meant that every time he went to start to make a new film, it had to be as good or as intense or as as 
diligent or as focused as his previous work. So, you know, and he was he was uh, he was aging, and I mean, uh, the the pressure on him having I I don't think it's an accident that he died almost just as the film was coming out, and uh, it's. You know, and that feels a little bit tragic when you think about it. But uh, but I think that um, yeah, I, I like going back and watching watching Eyes Wide Shut. I don't know how I feel about the way it was censored, but um, <laughs> you know, ugh. anyway, it is what it is. Uh, I I I, uh, I can I can appreciate it. I know that they there's actually you can find somewhere on the internet a version that's uncensored. Well, isn't the version that's available now the uncensored version? Well, maybe it remember. is. I maybe think eventually they kind of for home video they kind of lifted the. The band. You have to find like the original DVD now, and I think maybe to see okay. them with the extra cloaked figures digitally inserted into the key scenes. It's, it's, uh, you know, it seems childish now, but what are you going to do? Well, that's it for our brief and uh, certainly not uh, as in depth as we could have gone look at the. At the films of Stanley Kubrick. There's no way to be comprehensive. No, I mean, we could probably spend a whole hour on just one film alone. Um, But that's not the nature of this particular show. So (laughs) I'm sure you can just, I'm sure you can find other shows on on the net that uh, will will give you uh, one film at a time devoted two two and a half hours to each film if you want. But, but you know, it's certainly, if you've listened this far, you've probably seen the films we've talked about. And if you haven't, uh, you really owe it to yourself to to check out this filmography. There, there certainly isn't a bad film in it, um, and the the ones that maybe aren't the the top shelf ones all deserve a look for performances and uh, and just sheer bravura of the 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 making of them that that make them uh, make them worthwhile. So hopefully uh, hopefully this show inspires you to take that step towards uh, checking out a title you've never seen before. If you enjoy the show, of course, you can uh, always find us on uh, Facebook page and uh, on Twitter at Lends Me Your Ears. And of course, as I mentioned at the top of the, uh, the show, I have a Twitter account at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Yeah, and mine is named after my blog, Flaw in the Iris. We have a Patreon account if you like what you've heard and want to support us in any way that you can. Uh, and that's always appreciated. And of course, we also appreciate uh, CKDU 88.1 FM for the use of their studio and uh, airing our show every other Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. And the Village Soundcast Network, which put it together so you can hear it in all its splendor. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.